We got a lot to talk about today uh, in Mark 9, uh, the transfiguration of Jesus. But before we get into all that, um, I just want to take a minute and pray. Lord, I just thank you for the day that you've given us. Thank you um, for bringing us back from recharge this past week. It was time to just disconnect from the busyness of life and uh, focus on who you are and, importantly, who we are as citizens of heaven. Lord, that's a a lesson, I think, that just applies across the board um, in any situation or any season that we're in remembering that we belong to a kingdom that is not in this world, but that is coming, um, that you're going to establish in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, I pray um, just as we get into your word today, that you would give me your words to say, Lord, that uh, you would get me out of the way and you just use me to speak um, your truth to your people. Lord, that I wouldn't be afraid um, or worried about who I might offend or um, what people will say, Lord, but I fear you most. And Lord, I want to be faithful um, as your servant to speak your word. I thank you and love you just for who you are. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Okay, so like I said, we are going to be in Mark um, chapter 9 today, starting in verse 1. So you can uh, just go ahead and turn there. First, I want to tell you a little bit um, about something that I've always done in my life. So I've, I hike um, and I do backpacking, <clears throat> and uh, I've done a lot of different areas and mountains and different levels of difficulty. Um, I remember actually being on like old rag not that long ago with the youth, um, and which is which is pretty strenuous. And in all these climbs uh, or all these adventures that we've done, I remember one thing um, that helps me really to uh, just push through some of the uh, difficulty, the sweatiness, the uh, 70-pound pack, which I put too much stuff in, um, the rock in my shoe, which we don't have time to stop and get out of there, and that is what's in my pack. And most, more, more importantly, more accurately, what is coming when I get to the top. See, because I have this tradition, or we establish a tradition, that when we get to the top, we get to stop, we get to have a break, enjoy the view, look at God's creation, and enjoy what we had packed. And in my case, it is a peanut butter, banana, and Nutella sandwich, um, which if you haven't had that, just try it out. It will uh, bless you in many ways. And help you in your hiking experiences. Um, So we're going to kind of look at this idea today in the transfiguration. We see where the disciples struggled. They had a difficult climb to make, right? Jesus, in fact, promised us that there's going to be trouble in life. There are going to be those that persecute you if you are pursuing Jesus, which obviously means if you are not being persecuted, you might want to take a look at that. And we know that Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 9, he said, the rain falls on the just and the unjust, on the good and the wicked. But the disciples had something they knew that was coming at the end of their journey that made it all worth it, that made the climb easier. So let's take a look at Mark 9, 
uh, verses 1 through 13. And if you are able, I would just ask that you stand as we read um, God's word. Chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took him, Peter, James, and John, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them, tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what is this rising from, what this rising from the dead might mean? And they asked him, why do the scribes say, why first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it was written of him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. So we see a lot of similar themes that we've been walking through in Mark repeated here, um, and and actually really kind of like fulfilled, and um, we see them really starting to take shape in the lives of the disciples. So the first thing. Um, we, see, we see some strange things. And uh, a lot of the um, time I spent studying the Transfiguration was really interesting for me because it made me come up with a whole list of my questions um, because, you know, you don't just, I mean, maybe I, I don't, maybe you do, just crack open the Bible. I'm going to study the Transfiguration today. Um, so Jesus is there with Moses and Elijah. And as far as we know, this is, this is quite literally Moses and Elijah are there. And Moses represents the law. That is, the Old Testament law that was given to them in Deuteronomy and Leviticus uh, that the Israelites had to live out as God's people to be counted as righteous. And then we know that no one could do that. And so there were sacrifices that had to be made in the tabernacle to atone for the people's sins. And then we have Elijah, who represents the prophets, um, who speak God's word to his people. And then we see an amazing thing happen. Um, We hear, again, the voice of the Lord speaking, this is Father God, speaking to Jesus, just like when Jesus was baptized by John, uh, and we hear the voice. He speaks and affirms Jesus as the promised Savior and the fulfillment of the law, saying that now the old covenant gives way to the new covenant. Now, that's not to say that the law was was dead and gone abolished. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law, Um, but actually, what he does there is he raises the standard. Jesus calls us to a higher thing because he tells us it's not about the, the outward fulfillment, right? Which is what the Pharisees were so good at and which he spent so much of his ministry taking time to kind of break down those ideas that it is what we do outwardly um, that makes us righteous before a holy God. Instead, what he does 
is he talks about the inward fulfillment of the law. But it is uh, fulfilled in Christ, and those who are in Christ Jesus will not come to condemnation under it. Right? A lot of times I think um, we get very caught up in, oh, I can do these things. Um, I'm much better than this person at this or whatever. I'm definitely not as bad at that person or as this person. And we strive to fulfill this law under our works. Just even like the Ten Commandments, we strive to complete these things to please God. But the law tells us that we are completely unable to do it in and of ourselves. And Jesus doesn't even as much care about the outward things that we're doing as he does the heart. He upholds the standard and says, if you have anger against your brother, if you hate them in your heart, you've murdered them in your heart. If you lust after a woman with your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart, right? So as you go through the Ten Commandments, <clears throat> I think we can you know, say, well, I haven't murdered anyone. Um, I haven't stolen anything really valuable or anything like that. I haven't committed adultery. But then Jesus raises this question, and then you look inward and have you? Have you done those things? And I would suggest um, if we hold ourselves and compare ourselves even just to those Ten Commandments, we would not come out very well on that. But this is the beauty of the gospel. See, the law shows us our need for a Savior. In Romans 3, it talks about no one is righteous, no one is good. Um, There's no one that, that does good or seeks after God. But now, because of Jesus... Right, and, and we haven't seen this yet at this point in Mark, but we know now because of Jesus, his perfect life of keeping God's law perfectly in every way, his substitutionary death on the cross, which, by the way, was not just nails in his hands and, and beatings and, and blood loss and the excruciating death, which um, death on a cross is, but it was actually the full wrath of God. And I love um, the way a speaker we heard this past week said it, and so I'll just let you fill you guys in on this. He says, imagine a great dam. And by the way, this falls woefully short, but I hope it helps, uh, at least in some way, to imagine the wrath of God that Jesus bore for us. Imagine just a great dam, like the Hoover Dam 10 times over, and it's holding back all this water. And you're standing way down here in the valley, and you're looking up at this dam, you're admiring it, maybe thinking about the immense amount of water that it's holding. And then you see a crack begin. And all of a sudden the dam bursts. And all that water is just coming down. Uh, and there's no way to escape it. It's coming for you. And then just before it reaches you, a hole in the ground opens up and just uh, swallows all the water. That's what Jesus did when he took the wrath for those of us who have placed our trust in him. That's what he did which is much worse than any physical uh, death or punishment or torture that Romans could inflict. So his substitutionary death, his living out the law perfectly for us, and his resurrection, which, by the way, separates him from any other religious figure in uh, history. There's no other resurrections that have taken place. Um, In fact, you can go to the tombs of of pretty much any... uh, important figure like Muhammad or Buddha, and you can see where their remains are. But with Jesus, we don't have that because he's not there. Because as we're going to take a look at in a minute, he left. He's gone to prepare a place for us, as he told the disciples, and he's coming back again. 
But we know through all this, we are now made alive in Christ, alive in him. As Ephesians 2 talks about being dead in our trespasses and sin, being enemies of God, actually. Not just that we were like, well, we didn't know him or something like that. No, we were against God in every single way. But he has made a way for us to be declared righteous before a holy God. So as we look about at this old covenant giving way to the new covenant, which is what's going on here, um, and it is, it is actually a really huge thing. Jeremiah, the prophets, which is, I would say, suggest to you why Elijah was there um, representing the prophets, because they spoke about the coming Savior for hundreds and hundreds of years before he came. Um, take a look, actually, at, uh, or, well, I think, no, never mind. We don't have it on the screen. <laughs> I'm used to putting it on the screen for the youth. I'll work on that for you guys. Um, so, Jeremiah 31, 31 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. This is that. This is the fulfillment of that. This moment where God says, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. We see all throughout the prophets, hundreds of years going by, and every book in the Old Testament is a picture of Jesus, of the Savior who's coming. And now we have it embodied right here. Jesus is the embodiment of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit of God in his people, enabling them, slash us, to live faithful lives as disciples of Jesus and exiles in the world. So we also have the disciples here, and we see how um, Peter, kind of in his classic way, um, and the disciples as a whole, I'll just put them all together, um, are still not fully getting what's going on, right? They're there with Jesus, and it doesn't quite make sense to them yet. They had trouble understanding what Jesus was telling them, pretty much throughout all this ministry. Like Erica unpacked for us last week, as we saw in weeks past, when they're in the boats, when he's doing miracles. They're like, Jesus, what, what's going on? So here's um, kind of how some of that comes to completion, and they begin to see a little more clearly. He talks about himself as the Savior, which they don't really understand, and kind of put in their own version of a savior. He talks about the kingdom of God, which they get in their minds is this idea that Jesus is going to kick out the Romans, and boom, everything is going to be great. <clears throat> and so, like with Peter, we see how the disciples are like, okay, you know, and they're, and they're getting it a little bit, and they're going out, and they're doing works, and they're coming back to Jesus, and he's discipling them. Is why they're, that's why they're called disciples. Um, and he's teaching them to do this on their own because he knows he's going to be going away and he knows what's coming for them. And he wants them to realize, uh, to hold true to what he's taught them, which is what we see in uh, Matthew 28, 18, when he charges them with a great commission. So if you remember to last week, we talked, uh, Eric talked about the man at uh, Bethsaida, the blind man, and how it was unique in the miracles that Jesus did in that it didn't happen all at once. Like usually someone has faith and he's by your faith, you're healed, go, don't tell anyone about this or go home or whatever, they're healed because you believe. Um, and we see a healing, but it, it, takes, it takes a couple steps almost. And that is not to say that Jesus' power isn't sufficient in healing, but what he's doing, I would suggest to you and what R.C. Sproul actually um, suggested to me is that Jesus did this on purpose 
to kind of show the disciples to, and, and maybe us later um, the point that he's making is there was a seeing dimly. Jesus laid his hands on the man and he saw dimly like walking trees. And then he laid his hands on him again and he saw clearly. <clears throat> so last week, um, we see Peter famously declaring Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, which is great. He, Jesus says, who do you say I am? Peter nails it. But, but right after that, he says, well, you're this kind of Savior. You're my kind of Savior, and my kind of Savior isn't going to go through all that suffering, isn't going to die on a cross, and all this thing. And then Jesus puts him in his place saying, get behind me, Satan. Um, so uh, lest we think too much of ourselves and not enough of Peter, um, I would suggest to you that actually we take a look at who wrote uh, the book of Mark, and this is written by John Mark, which I think we talked about when we started this, um, and it's account of Peter. John Mark was taking down Peter's words, and Peter uses himself here as an example of, hey, this was a time where I said something dumb, um, learn from me here. And so we see that growing and that maturing in Peter later and further down the road when he is a, an apostle of the church. Um, which is just an awesome uh, depiction of his discipleship and continual maturity in Christ. And don't we do that? You know, don't we have this one idea of this is my Jesus, this is how he should be, this is how he's going to live, this is what he can do, this is what he can't do. When Jesus doesn't fit in our box, he's so much more than our box could ever contain to begin with. We see this play out in verse 5 on, this, on the mountain when Peter says they should build tents. Right? He says, it's great that we're here, Rabbi, because, or, so let us make some tents for you and Elijah and Moses. For he did not know what to say, obviously. And they were terrified, which seeing the glorified uh, Christ in front of you, that's understandable. But here's the thing. Jesus knew the disciples weren't going to understand everything, and that's Okay. Jesus knows that we're not going to understand everything, and that's okay. In fact, Scripture teaches us that there are things in this life we're not going to understand. God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Um, as Pastor Todd loves to point out, we are maybe aware of three things going on in our lives, and God has 10,000 things going on. It's okay that we didn't understand, that the disciples didn't understand then, just like we won't as we follow our discipleship journey towards Christ. He graciously, though, allowed them to see his glory to kind of give them a clearer sight, like the man at Bethsaida. So the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, um, who, who now sees clearly, by the way, um, his Savior, uh, says this, Peter and the other disciples found it difficult to believe that Jesus would have to suffer and die. And they were no doubt troubled by our Lord's teaching that true discipleship involves suffering. Stop right there. True discipleship involves suffering. Ouch. They needed encouragement. They needed encouragement that all was proceeding exactly as God had planned and that suffering for Christ's sake would be worthwhile. And the, the beautiful thing that Jesus does here in, in allowing them to participate in this, to be witness to this event, is that they receive that encouragement. They see the glorified Christ who 
after he dies and then leaves again, or raises to life and then leaves again, has promised them he's coming back. They get a glimpse of that future glory to come. It allowed them to see more clearly instead of the dim vision that we had seen repeatedly on the boat and with the man at Bethsaida, they see clearly now. And it was something that they would take with them forever. It was something that they would need for the rest of their lives. Because Jesus clearly taught time and time again there's a cost to discipleship and to following him. That's why he says in Luke 9 to take up your cross. He didn't say take up something very comfortable like a you know, blow up mattress. He said take up your cross, which is a sign of death and torture and hardship in every way. And I think today, I, I know today, it is a cost that many are unwilling or maybe too attached to their lives to pay, to give. Jesus never said it was going to be easy to be a disciple of him, to be a follower of him. But that's what separates followers from fans of Jesus. What he did say, though, is that it would be worth it. And if there's any other gospel, by the way, that you hear that says, oh, it doesn't have to be hard, or you don't have to experience suffering in this life or difficulty, that's a false gospel. I'm sorry. And uh, we will continue to just to call that out. So what Jesus didn't say, Jesus didn't say what would attract the most people, right? There, were, there are many times where Jesus does a miracle. He gathers huge crowds. They're following him. They want to make him king. And then he says something like, uh, hey, you have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood to be a disciple of me. And they're not like, uh, actually, Jesus, we were just here for the bread. And they walk away. That's why um, I was either the week before last, we talked about Jesus saying, where are you guys going to go? Are you going to leave me too? And the disciples, in a moment of clarity, ask him, where else, where else are we going to go? Who else has life? See, our hope in disciples is not in the life now, which I think a lot of us get mixed up, which I get mixed up. There's a lot of things in this life to hope in. A lot of things are really attractive, um, like my sandwiches in my backpack that I talked about earlier. They're attractive. They help. Um, it gets me to the top of the mountain. But that's placing hope in the life now, not the one to come. In, in temporary fleeting things. In a very short life, honestly. <clears throat> Which I know sounds weird for me to say at 25, but it's, I guess I had like a third life crisis and um, just considered that, wow, this has gone by pretty quickly um, and that I need to not be placing my hope in the life now, even in the, the next 50 years or the next five years or the next five days that I have left. My hope needs to be in where I belong, in where I'm a citizen of, We take a look at Philippians 3.20, which is just awesome. We had a whole week unpacking this idea, um, and I had started this before then. And so just to see how the Lord works all things together, um, it says here, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body 
by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is what the disciples just saw when Jesus is transfigured. They saw a momentary view of Jesus' glory. And so much so that even when they come down off the mountain, people are looking at him and they're, and they're amazed and they're shocked and, and terrified at the glorified uh, appearance of Jesus. <clears throat> which is pointing to the things that are coming for those who believe in him. So they get this glimpse of the future glory. And throughout the gospel, we see the disciples, they have this idea or this version of the Messiah who's going to come and build an earthly kingdom and throw out the Romans who are oppressing them and deal with the corruption in the government. And, uh, you know, let's just translate to this now. Maybe um, deal with all the issues that we have going on economically. Get rid of the corruption in Congress. Install a great president, you know, himself as our president. See how these, these things never change? How when Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun, we can look back at those times and they're not that far away. They're not that different. We're not that different. We go through the same things. We go through the same doubt. Something I would encourage you, something I, uh, that helps me, is when I see the disciples, when I see the, the people of Israel doing something in the Old Testament, and instead of being like, how did you guys not know? Jesus was right there. Jesus is right here. I need to remind myself, and I don't see just as often as they do. My vision easily grows dim. And I pray for us that we would have that clear vision of what is to come. So Jesus teaches the kingdom of God, which he will establish, is not of this world, but will be part of a new creation. And we don't have time to look into Revelation where he talks about that, but it's, it is awesome. And Isaiah 65 also unpacks what the kingdom of God is like. Um, and I encourage you just to read that. <clears throat> but Romans 8, 18 says this, which is when we get back to the the nitty-gritty of discipleship and part of this, this struggle in, in living our lives uh, with this end in mind. It says, for I, this is Paul writing, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is revealed to us. The apostles, the disciples, had the glory of God revealed to them. And we get to see this um, in Scripture. We get to see this as we grow in our walk with the Lord. Glimpses of this, this glory that's coming, the kingdom of God, which we are going to be citizens, which we are citizens of, and which we are going to live um, and enjoy God perfectly in one day. But the disciples, they struggle through much of Jesus' teaching, um, and it's just amazing to see how these guys who, who don't see, who struggle with this, who have their own idea of what Jesus is going to be like, who get called Satan and told to like walk away and be quiet, uh, become these amazing apostles of Acts as we see them doing awesome things by the power of God, healing people, casting out demons, uh, preaching the word, and all these things. All by the power of God and growing the church all over the world because they saw a glimpse of the glory of Jesus and knew it was worth it at that moment. It was worth spending their lives for. It was worth living their lives for. Right? I think 
the, the, what we always say is, uh, you know, it's, it's very easy to give your life for something, right? You know, someone comes through the door right now and it's like, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, sure, boom, you're gone. But does my life reflect that every day? See, the person I usually need to die to is me daily. Again, Luke 9, taking up your cross daily, not one time. They saw this, this glimpse and they knew it was worth spending their lives living and ultimately losing them for. Because the disciples did, to, to a single, uh, every single one lost their lives for the gospel, minus John, who um, was still beaten and tortured and I think the boiled alive and lived through it and then uh, exiled to Patmos, which, you know, so he got off easy, right? <laughs> they saw that it was all worth it. They knew that an eternity spent with God, the infinite and ultimate source of joy, was nothing compared to the present sufferings that they were experiencing or that they would experience. And the thing is, this wasn't just for the apostles. Right? We're like, okay, awesome. That was great for them. They're the super Christians, right? That's what they were supposed to do. Um, well, to dispel any myths that we might have, there are no super Christians. There is Christian and then uh, not Christian. Or there are followers of Jesus and then there are those who are not. There's one narrow hard road that leads to life and another one that leads to destruction. There's no middle ground. There's like no, there's no third road that's like, well, I can kind of do both things or, you know, I, I don't have to do the hard stuff as long as I'm in the pew on Sunday, as long as I give like I should, as long as I'm nice to people at work. There's two roads. We're called to the same thing. And this is not our home. We are called to be set apart exiles strangers and outsiders. I'll give you this illustration. Um, so everyone's familiar with a boat? Okay, good, good, that's great. Um, and then boats do very well in the water, right? That's what they're designed for. The uh, principle of buoyancy makes them float. Even huge ships, uh, they excel in the water. Cars don't, boats do. They were designed for it, right? They were designed to be in it. But here's the thing, water is not designed to be in boats, right? Then boats don't function very well. In fact, they sink, they go down. I'm very easy thing to understand, but uh, bear with me for a moment. As outsiders, as exiles, as people who are called um, to be set apart, to be holy for God, we're called to be boats in the water of this life, of this world, right? Navigating, steering, doing whatever uh, we are called to do by God, being obedient to his will and trusting him and knowing that his will um, is the best. But we're not called to have water in our boat. I think that's where we, we get mixed up. That's where that idea of a third road comes from is, well, I, you know, my boat still floats with a little bit of water in it. You know, I don't have to start bailing yet. We're still going, maybe not as fast, maybe not as well. We're not sinking yet. We're called to be boats in the water, not to have water in our boat. 
We're made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Plain and simple. So whenever you're asked or have trouble finding your purpose, that's what it is. We're made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God created Adam and Eve. That's why he made all creation. That's why we are here. But I think a lot of times we don't think about those sort of things. See, Francis Chan and, uh, and John Piper, they talk a little bit about retirement plans, right? And they probably don't have very popular opinions on them. But they say something to the effect, and I would encourage you to maybe look that up. Um, they say something to the effect, are you planning for the next 50 years, right? Which is wise. Um, are you planning for the next 30 years, maybe the next 20 years? Or are you planning for the next million years? There's wisdom in being good stewards with what we are blessed with in this life. Um, but as Jesus taught, we are to use all that we have for his glory and his kingdom that's coming. I want it said of me that maybe, you know, I was wise with the stuff that I was blessed with. And so I spent it all for his glory, for his kingdom, for his purpose in my life. And maybe that doesn't set me up for the last 20 years of my life, whatever that looks like. Uh, maybe I, I spend it in a cardboard box until he calls me home. But wouldn't that be a great thing to be able to present to Jesus? It's like, look, I, I had all this and I gave it. I gave it. I left it all on the field because this wasn't my home anyway. It wasn't where I'm, where I'm supposed to be to begin with. I'm just passing through. Being eternally minded, keeping that end in focused, that, uh, that top of the mountain, if you will, makes denying now easier. Whatever it is that God has called us to deny, it makes it easier. And this is what the disciples saw, what the disciples needed um, in this, this hope <clears throat> and seeing the transfiguration of Jesus take place and realizing that all these things that Jesus was talking about were going to come to be. And yeah, he hadn't died yet. They still didn't know what he meant when he said the Son of Man should suffer and be treated with contempt and die. And they questioned when he said, what does it mean that he's going to come back to life? But this helped them to see clearly. My prayer for us is that these same things would be said of us as a church. That we would see clearly where our home is, where we're going. That we would be set apart outsiders, exiles, in this life, that we would be eternally minded, which helps us to deny, to give up, to take up that cross and follow daily. Let's pray. <sighs> Heavenly Father, I thank you just for your word. I thank you that we have a glorious hope in Jesus, that we have seen <clears throat> uh, now in part and one day we will see in whole. Lord, I pray that in this we would keep our end in focus, keep our home, our eternity in focus in this life. That would encourage us, bolden us, strengthen us to deny whatever it is that is keeping us from that. Lord, as Todd said that we would not be trying to sneak those things through customs that are not coming into the kingdom of God, but that we would be giving them over to you, that we would be putting them to death in our lives. Lord, I thank you just for 
the gift of Jesus, for the blessing um, that he made a way, that he opened up a way, that he fulfilled the law perfectly that none of us could do, that he was our sacrifice for our sin that we so rightly deserved, that when we stood guilty and accused, he bore the punishment and the wrath for us. And now we know that our accuser stands silenced before the throne, that we can come boldly as children of God into your presence. Lord, we love you and we thank you just for who you are. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.